So, good evening. <clears throat> so, what I'd like to talk about this evening is uh, more of the heart qualities of the practice. So, thus far, we've been more emphasizing uh, mindfulness and the insight qualities that arise. And we've introduced over the last couple of days, in a very simple way, the practice of metta, of loving kindness. So I want to speak a little more to that quality and the various heart qualities that can arise and we can develop in the practice and how the practice of mindfulness and insight and awareness goes hand in hand with the cultivation of our hearts. We can't uh, practice one in isolation. The, we use the metaphor of having two wings of a bird, the wings of awareness and clarity and insight, and the wing of the heart, of kindness, of love, of compassion. And uh, to have an effective life, an effective spiritual life, spiritual path, we need to uh, give attention to both qualities. And we may have a leaning towards one or the other in our lives. And uh, the Buddha certainly emphasized the value of cultivating both. So the question that I keep uh, hearing myself reflect on this retreat as I'm teaching is how do we meet this? How do you meet this moment, this experience, this sensation, this emotion, this person, this difficulty, this whatever is arising, how do you meet it? This seems to be a really important question in this practice. How do you meet life as it's presenting itself to you right now, in this moment, and the next moment, however beautiful and sublime, however difficult and boring, however painful, so I came across a note uh, written by a yogi from a past retreat. And she wrote, I have monkey mind. Monkey mind's the mind when the mind's really busy and all over the place, which you might be familiar with at this point. I have monkey mind and everybody is getting on my nerves. What's up? <laughs> I was fine before lunch. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> I was cruising, my yoga practice was great, I sat, I was happy, and then suddenly I hate everybody. I can't stand everybody in the lunch, everybody's really annoying me. Or whatever, you know, it can be any combination of that. So, and the question would be, how do you meet that? How do you meet things are going well? How do you meet hating everybody? Everyone's bugging me. So I had a student come in to a session last week and uh, not, un, I mean, the, the extent of her difficulty was sort of remarkable, but it was also not that unfamiliar. She talked about coming in, she talked about the recent events of her life, of her, one of her parents passing away, and then the other parent who was also aged and frail came to move in with her. 
that place a lot of stress on their relationship and they just uh, gone into this big vi- business venture which collapsed and they became bankrupt and uh, put a lot more stress on the relationship and then she ended up losing the relationship and the house and just this cascade of difficult phenomena and then her other parent passed away um, and just, you know, it was just remarkable at, at how much pain and suffering we can be exposed to, unbidden, not knowing when it's going to happen. And the, the same question comes up, how do we meet that? You know, however tragic and difficult, and that's what we were exploring in our work together, is how she holds that, both herself and the pain and the loss and the tragedy and the despair and the hopelessness and uh, how does she hold her family, how does she work with other people in her family. So, you know, I'm sure many of you have, I know I've heard many of you have gone through difficult things on this retreat and the same question would apply. How do we meet this? Somebody once uh, was telling me on a retreat that she... um, she was probably in her 50s, I would say, and had been suffering from the effects of childhood abuse uh, from a very young age. And what was striking was that she, she had always blamed herself for that abuse, even though she was only five at the time. Just the way the psyche had learned to somehow navigate that difficult territory. And so we did still a very simple piece of work, and I asked her to turn towards that young girl who was abused with some kindness and some tenderness and curiosity, and to begin a dialogue, to begin a relationship, which to that point hadn't really been happening because she'd cut off and rejected and blamed and was angry with herself and kind of split in a certain kind of way. So, you know, basically what I was asking her to do was to bring this quality of kindness, of metta, to that very pained part of her that that hadn't been receiving that nurturance and to begin a dialogue, a relationship, a, a communication. And over the course of the retreat, um as sometimes happens, it didn't take her a lot to be able to fully open to the suffering of that young one and to feel the pain of that and to also feel tremendous forgiveness uh, and healing. And it was a beautiful example to me of how when when we can meet our own difficulty and pain with a soft loving presence, it can bring about tremendous healing. And it doesn't necessarily need to take a long time. Sometimes it does. I said to someone in the group the other day that the, the, length of a, the length that a pattern may have been with us does not determine how long it will need to unfold. So in her case, she'd had this very painful cluster of emotions and patterns for 50 years and it took very little time to actually come to some healing. So 
So I want to read a poem by the poet Mary Howe, um, who is a wonderful poet, and a lot of her poetry was written in relationship to her brother, who died when he was 28. And so she's writing this poem partly to him. And it speaks to the, the, our human experience and relating to that. I think we're going to need the glasses here. It's called What the Living Do. Johnny, it's her brother's name. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes are piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the every day we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep, headstrong blue. The sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you call that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living and I remember you. So I like that poem because it speaks to the, the messiness of our life. Anybody feel like their life is kind of messy, complicated, not smooth, not how it is on TV or on the ads? <laughs> you know, the drain blocks and the heating doesn't work and this happens and that happens. And how do we meet that? Can we meet that with some openness, some tenderness, some forgiveness, some compassion for just the the, even though these aren't big things, the sum of these things, it's, you know, it's part of the human dilemma. It's hard, part of dukkha, being in this material world. And she's also speaking to how we lean forward and long for these things to be done with. Right? How many difficult sittings have you been through where you just can't wait for the bell to be rung? Right? Or difficult situations, difficult times in relationship, difficult emotions that come up, and you find you're just leaning forward, waiting for, the, waiting for it to be done, as opposed to being in it, feeling it, understanding it, working with it. And then there's moments when we, when we can stay open that we do catch, as she says, a, a reflection of our face, and there's incredible tenderness, there's tenderable, incredible warmth. So the Buddha, um, way back when, um, first taught the metta practice, so, it's, so we're told, um, 
to a group of monks who were practicing in the forest, as they did back then. Didn't have such cushy retreat centers like this. And um, they were uh, deep in the forest. And at the time, the forests were inhabited by a lot of wild animals. Uh, I think at the time in India, there were lions, there were tigers. Uh, so a lot of predators and also a lot of bandits. Um, and there was a fair bit of danger of being in the forest. And also um, in that time, a belief in uh, spirits. And they, these monks were being taunted and haunted by the spirits. And so they came to the Buddha and said, look, you know, says we're having a really difficult time practicing. Can you give us some, uh, some, what was the word, some support, some refuge, some um, protection? And so the Buddha said, gave them the practice of loving kindness to generate this heartfulness, this warm friendliness to all the things that they were afraid of in particular the spirits. So the story goes, the monks go back and they develop heart of loving kindness and they radiate it outwards and they no longer feel afraid and the spirits who were at that time um, malevolent became benevolent. Um, so he taught it to work with fear and to work with difficulty. And so it's a great practice we can develop and cultivate and train in to support the times that we're challenged, we're going through difficulty. One of my favorite lines about metta that he said, he said, develop a mind so full of love, it resembles space. Develop a mind so full of love, it resembles space. That vast, that spacious. And he said, so it can't be painted, marred, or tainted. That no matter what happens, it's that spacious, it can accommodate and hold anything. So, and I'll speak to the, the potential of meta practice as I go on. So, in the, the, the Dharma path is a path of one way of understanding the path is moving from unwholesome, unskillful, painful, difficult states of mind and heart and being to uh, cultivating and residing, having more access to more skillful, wholesome uh, states of mind and being and liberating us from the tormenting afflictions and, and self-created suffering that we get mired in. And so the 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 qualities of metta and, and uh, mindfulness work really well in that journey together. So this is another story from a retreat. Uh, I was recently teaching at IMS, which is a sister center in, in, um, in Massachusetts. And I was working with a student who uh, was a gardener. She's a farmer. And um, she reported having this really tight, hard knot in the center of her chest. And so we did a little guided you know, visualization, sort of a body awareness into that. And so the image was this really hardened nut, like a walnut, like really hard, tight, dense, contracted, painful that she'd felt for a long time. And so I just gave her the instruction of bringing awareness to that with trying to have some, some warmth, some tenderness to that, 
and just see what happens over the day. So she took that on the practice, and instead of uh, what I think she'd been doing in the past, which we often do to difficult things, is to have some distance and some aversion or rejection, she just practiced, you know, like we've been doing with the meta practice in the body, turning that warmth towards the nut, the hardness. And over time, it softened, and the tears came, and the the, the, the understanding of what that hardness and the contraction was and the, the self-hatred that was wrapped up in that. And at the end of the retreat, what I, what I love about this story is that being a farmer, that what she noticed is the, the, the hard nut, as we checked in at the end, had grown into a sprouting seed, like a little sapling, the, the, from what was once a tight, cold, lifeless place had turned into some some light, some warmth, some life. So even though we teach these practices somewhat distinctly, they are really uh, not so separate. And we can see qualities of metta within mindfulness and qualities of mindfulness within metta, but they're not. We can't really do one fully without the other. The sixth Zen patriarch, who was one of the great Chan teachers of China, he said, Do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. We can't be... Awareness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression of awareness. Kindness is the manifestation the outpouring of that presence that we have. So if you take a moment to reflect on any moment of mindfulness, what qualities are present within that experience? So there's attention, obviously. There's connection with what's happening. There's probably some curiosity or some interest, some energy, some movement towards... There's usually a quality of allowing, not interfering, not judging. So letting be, and a sense of uh, connection, sense of intimacy with what it is we're paying attention to, like the breath. Right? So many of these qualities are also present in a moment of love. We're present, we're open, and we're allowing, we're connected. There's, there's intimacy, there's non-judgment, there's non-interference. Joanna Macy, who's a great Buddhist activist and teacher and writer, she she writes, The Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic, which is not something that most Buddhist teachers say about Buddhism, just (laughs) FYI. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention, and if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is, anything. You put your attention on it, and it reveals itself to you. So maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you've been very mindful of maybe just taking some simple steps. Maybe you walk bare feet, and you're feeling the warm earth under your feet, or the grass, or the soil, or you're feeling the sunlight on your face, and there's that incredible sense of presence and intimacy, and there's also a feeling of tenderness may arise. So the poet Mary Oliver puts it this way. She says, There is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder 
and love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. So I know for a lot of people, this is the most common experience is uh, to sense this is in nature. And just to be walking outside and seeing the beautiful swallows. And if you've seen the swallows nesting up here by the interview rooms, and they sit, sit delicately on their nests, all sort of fragile and shaking and vulnerable. And all the little fawns that are running around in the forest or the baby turkeys. And we you know if we're fully present, it's hard not to fall in love, right? Or a butterfly or a little lizard or... I was even walking down here the other day and um, there was, I was walking along the path and there was this beautiful piece of grass like elegantly just stretched over the path and at the very tip of the grass, there's, there's the, 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 like the poem, like Anna's poem about the Zen master saying, I'm a, I'm a dewdrop hanging on the tip of a leaf. This was a tick hanging on the very tip of a leaf. And I thought, how perfect, like he's right dead center in the path and that's how they, you know, they, they grab onto you by finding those places where they expect people to walk by and then they jump on for a free ride. And I couldn't help feeling admiration and some love for this tick. <laughs> I gave it a wide berth, you know, didn't sort of let it take it on as a pet. But um, so we can find love for anything if we're present. And I'm sure you felt that you know, with the nature here that's so abundant and beautiful, it's easier, it's safer. And it's often more fluid for the heart to open in that way. Maybe you've, I know people have mentioned it today about feeling that for each other here. You know, maybe you started, came here and somewhat, you know, not knowing anybody and perhaps a little cautious or wary or self-conscious or judgmental. Who are these people? What are they up to? Why are they walking so weird, you know? And then over the days is maybe the people you're doing yoga next to or the people in your group or people you sit next to in the dining room and you find there's, a little, there's more affection, there's more appreciation. Even though we're not getting to know each other verbally, there's a sense of camaraderie that happens, a sense of affection uh, at times. So... <clears throat> So the potential of the meta practice is really profound, and it sometimes is surprising given what seems like a relatively simple and sometimes mundane practice. Right? We're mostly cultivating these 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 wishes, these intentions that express our desire for our well-being and the well-being of others. And it's a repetitious practice, and we're turning our hearts in that direction. And it's and it's it's, it's just still amazing to me how profoundly it can kind of transform our heart and our being. One of the stories that I love about the Buddha um, was actually after he died, and um, Ananda, who was his trusted attendant for some decades um, was not to be found and people got concerned and he was found in the forest distraught. He was, he was so upset at the loss of his teacher and his friend and his, they were cousins actually. And, um, 
and the, 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 the words that he was heard uttering um, in his distraught state was, he who was so kind, he who was so kind, the Buddha that was so kind. But of all the things he could have mentioned about the Buddha, this great teacher and great, how enlightened and how clear and all of that, he, what he remembered was most poignant was he, he who was so kind. And I love that, that that being the one of the fruitions of his practice. And I think it's the fruition of any of our practice is how our practice manifests in our lives. So it's one thing to be a great meditator or a great, you know, yogi, yogini, and put yourself into pretzels on your mat. Uh, And it's another thing to actually manifest the qualities of kindness and love and presence and patience in our lives. And that's ultimately what this practice is about. So um, a story that uh, Sharon Salzberg, colleague, great teacher within on the East Coast and on the Meta retreats, she likes to tell the story of a friend of hers who um, came to her. They were having lunch one day, and he'd been doing Meta practice for three or four years. And he said, "You know, my practice. You know, I, I just don't see any change in the practice. Like I." you know, it still feels sort of rote and a little boring. And, you know, I do it every day. I'm really committed to it. But, um, you know, I notice in my life that, you know, I'm a lot more patient and I'm, I'm really much kinder to the kids. And people have said at work that I'm really much more mellower and, and more easygoing. And, and he said, is that enough? <laughs> my practice is really, you know, it's not on the cushion. It's not happening. So it's not about what's happening on the cushion ultimately. It's about how it manifests. And sometimes the practice, and I've been doing meta practice for uh, you know, a long time, 25 years. I started with meta practice back in the East End of London. And, um, and it still can at times feel rote. N- not so much anymore, but it, it can have that quality. And yet I see how it's transformed my relationship to myself and to others and So when I first started practicing, um, as, as I've said before, I had a somewhat antagonistic relationship to myself. I didn't like myself very much. And uh, in fact, I really didn't like myself a lot. And had a lot of self-judgments and anger and frustration. And, uh, and, so, and, and I, I had some intuitive sense that the meta practice would be useful, even though it was something of quite outside of my realm of experience. Um, but I had a lot of faith in the teachers that I was studying with, and so I just took it on every day as a practice, and I did it for years. And uh, in the beginning, it, it was very rote, and I was, nothing much happened, and I would complain to my teachers. <laughs> nothing much happened, and um, they said, just keep doing it, it works. And I said, okay. And I did notice after, t- after some time that that sort of ice block that I felt in my heart, in my chest, started to soften, started to melt. Um, and there was, there was just a softening of that contraction and tightness and, and reactivity towards myself. So um, I kept doing it and started doing longer retreats with it. And 
um, have really appreciated having that as a support in many, many different situations. So, what is metta? What is this quality? Anybody want to say what is metta in a couple of words? What is metta? Nobody? <laughs> Loving kindness, okay. Compassion, respect, friendliness. Anything else? Forgiveness, humor, goodness, uh-huh. tenderness, joy, simplicity, I think I heard. Blessing. Mm-hmm. What? The dorm? <laughs> oh, the dorm. <laughs> the dorm, yes, it's also a building. <laughs> That's good. That's really what it is. It's, it's, it's just a building. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so it, it is many of these qualities that you're pointing to. Um, and each of us will, will feel it in a different way, and it will evolve and change over time. It liter- the, the literal translation of the word is friendliness, friendship. It's a friendly, warm attitude to, to experience, to life. So um, our association with, with meta is through the word love, since we don't have, there's no really direct, good translation. We use the word loving-kindness. That's what came down to us from the Victorian translators, but it's a little archaic. And there's a lot of problems with using the word love because there's so many different associations in our culture with love, you know, from pop songs and sentimental love. And my dry cleaners has this sticker on the heart sticker says, we love our customers. (laughs) I'm not so sure how I feel about that. I wonder if they'll still love me if I go and use another dry cleaners. <laughs> so I came across some words from some four-year-olds about love, who I actually think they know quite a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, so here's a couple of guesses at what love is. Not me, perhaps, are accurate, but cute. I know my sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> the innocence of <laughs> four-year-olds. Or Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> <laughs> Except at Spirit Rock because we don't allow that kind of fragrance. So. And there's no smelling of each other either. So, and then these couple other statements get a little closer. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. (laughs) Or when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over to paint her nails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. 
So, um, from a Buddhist perspective, um, the 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 Buddhist had a very, you know, he talked about matter in a very idealistic way, in the sense of pointing to the boundless quality, the boundless potential of the heart to love, that it has tremendous capacity to love unconditionally, to love equally, to love everyone, everything with a boundless heart, with with a sense of unconditionality in that we don't want or expect anything back in return. This is the potential, this is the fullness, the capacity of our love. And we've all, we all have moments of this where we touch into that boundless, radiant quality where we really just see someone or ourselves or an animal or whatever it is, and we just, there's just love. A child, you know, someone who's ill, someone who's in distress, and there's just that sense of concern, that warmth. And we're not doing it for any particular motive, which is just that. The, the heart's nature is to do that. When the heart's unburdened and unburdened from whatever conditioning that's, that's allowed our heart to close down, that's the heart's impulse to wish well, to want others to be happy, to love. As D.H. Lawrence put it, those who go looking for love never find love. Only the loving find love and they never have to look for it. Only the loving find love and they never have to look for it. So the meta practice in this in this in its potential is asking us to move beyond the the boundary of our of our comfort zone in terms of who we're willing to extend our love to. So most of us, you know, may feel love for you know our near and dear ones, some family members, perhaps. Um, and um, friends and our, our loved one, our children. Um, but it's sort of like there's, there's usually like a, you know, we could draw a boundary almost around how far that goes out. You know, maybe it doesn't extend to the postman or to the difficult person at work or a past lover or, you know, all the various people that we might have some stuff around that makes us feel guarded or contracted or fearful or resentful. But the practice is, is the, the invitation is to, is to know a quality or capacity that can have that more radial quality of heart. And this is an example of this. This is from uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, Palestinian poet called Red Brocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed them for three days before asking who he is, where he's from, and where he's headed. That way he'll have enough strength enough to answer, or by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Would you like rice, pine nuts? Here, take the Red Brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to busy to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pre- pretend they had a purpose in this world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So it's a very sweet, gentle, you know, leaning into that potential. You know, may we, you know, to can we love strangers as we love our beloved? Is it possible? 
So the quality of metta is a, is a generosity of heart. It's a generous, life-affirming warmth, friendliness, care, tenderness, benevolent, well-wishing, kind, affectionate, that cherishes life, that really roots for life. And it also allows us to feel a sense of connection. There's a translation um, from one of the Burmese words of metta, which means water drop connection. And you know how you have two drops of water and they get close and they get closer and then suddenly they merge? I think that's what that, that word is pointing to, that metta connects Meta allows us to see we're not so separate, not so alone, not so isolated, not so individual and isolate. Right? When, we, when, we feel, when our hearts open to someone, we don't feel separate. We don't feel like they're an other. We feel like there's just presence, there's love, there's warmth, there's connection. So there's the ideal of the, the potential, the capacity of metta, but there's just the ordinary, everyday feeling of, of warmth, of well-wishing, just the friendliness that might happen here as you hold a door open or as you feel some tenderness towards somebody who's maybe looking in upset or in distress or when you're with a friend and they're hurting or just that natural impulse to care, to, to want others to be well. It's a very simple, ordinary, everyday feeling that we all have access to. It's, it's our nature, the heart's nature, is to be like this. So we all know this. It's not something esoteric. And there's also places that we've shut down and gotten scared and frightened and wounded and traumatized or whatever. So, so there are parts that are not so available. But it's good to remember this innate quality. So when you're cultivating meta practice, and I had a very interesting retreat. I did a meta retreat a few years ago here. It was a long retreat. And um, when you do intensive meta practice on a retreat, it, it can feel like a lot of work. With mindfulness, you're just being present, being aware, and there's a certain kind of ease to it. With meta, you're, you know, if you imagine saying the meta phrases from six in the morning till 10 at night, it gets a little kind of wearing, like enough already with the maybe, well, maybe happy. Um, so, um, and I was feeling that effortfulness of it. And I thought, wait a minute, I've heard for all these years the, the innate quality of meta. So how about I just soften into the heart, rest into the heart and feel the innate quality of love that's already here, rather than thinking I have to generate something external from myself. You bring something in, find that bag of matter and kind of stick it on my backpack. You know, it's like, oh, can I sense into that? So my practice since that time has been, I do the meta practice in a very slow way. I really sense into my body, sense into my heart, sense into any kind of goodness or warmth or goodwill, and then allow the phrases to very gently and slowly emerge from that place. So it doesn't feel mental and it doesn't feel effortful. It feels like it's just coming from that innate part of us that wants life to feel well. So you can play with that. There's a story that um, a teacher tells about uh, walking, imagine you're walking down the street 
and you've got your bags of groceries, you know, the ones without handles. I don't know why they have grocery bags without handles in this country, but they do, I guess, you know. Anyhow, they do. So, <laughs> um, so you're walking down the, bad, the road with your groceries, and someone bangs into you, and you f- spill your groceries on the floor, and your tomatoes go out, and the eggs smash, and it's all a mess, the ketchup, and... And you get really upset, and you're just about to turn around and yell at the person, a little, you know, pavement rage. And um, and you and you and you're about to say, "God, are you blind or something?" And you turn around, and you notice the person is blind. And all of a sudden, that that rage immediately gets disappeared and replaced by, "Oh my goodness, are you okay? Are you hurt? Can I help you?" And their groceries are spilled over the ground too, and you end up helping them. It's like that instinct is natural. You know, when we get out of our own egoic, reactive, contracted selves, which isn't necessarily that easy, but we can. So this is a a comic from, um, a cartoon from Gary Larson, uh, the great Dharma teacher, on this quality of innate goodness. So we're in hell, and um, we're with Satan, and he's coming out of his fiery den, and there's a bunch of new recruits into hell. And um, he's shouting, Mom, no, no. And his mom's wearing this little apron with you know tail coming out the back and little devil you know, things on the head. And, and the, the caption says, Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. And so she's there with a little tray, the milk and the cookies, and they're all super appreciative, and Satan's going nuts in the background. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's our instinctual nature, is to want to offer cookies and milk. So to trust that, to trust your capacity, to take, maybe take a moment as you, before you practice to reflect on the times that you've connected with this quality, where you've naturally felt warmth, when you felt love, you felt connection, you felt goodwill, you felt the wish for others to be happy. We all know this. Right? So metta is also um, an attitude of heart, as I mentioned earlier, about the way that we can meet experience. We can bring, that, we can bring the attitude of mindfulness, of presence, awareness, but we can also imbue that presence with, with, with warmth, with kindness, with softness, with receptivity. We can meet our experience very mindfully, but also in kind of a harsh way. And, you know, things in this world do not grow in, so easily in harsh, hostile environments. So if we, say, have an emotion of fear or, or anxiety or you know, loneliness or something. And our mindfulness is, what's that? Oh, mindfulness again. I mean, fear again. Oh, no. What's going to happen to those emotions? They're going to completely shut down. They're going to you know, become hard nuts in our heart, which is what happens over time where if we can bring a, an attitude of presence that has a sort of spirit of, oh, what is this? Oh, this is painful. Oh, yeah, sadness. Oh, yeah, it feels like this, and it hurts. Loneliness feels like this, ow, and it's really, really hard to be with. It's really intolerable, almost. 
So how we, the, the, the attitude in which we bring to these experiences really determines how they unfold. So pay, that's why we say in instructions, pay attention to the attitude you bring. Are you bringing more hindrances to the moment, aversion, wanting something else, wanting it to be different? Or are you bringing curiosity and openness and receptivity? So um, I had an experience of this a couple of years ago. I was teaching a day. I was a teacher d- teaching a day of metta, funnily enough, um, and uh, I um, had a really numb face all day, and I didn't know what was going on. It was a little trippy, and um, cut a long story short, um, I ended up going to the hospital, and I had Bell's palsy, where you, you know, the trigeminal nerve shuts down, and half your face goes numb. Um, and uh, the other face, the other, so one f- side looks like it's got a really good Botox treatment, <laughs> and the other side looks really weird because it's actually moving normally, but this side's so dead that it, it looks kind of weird. Anyhow, so, um, so it was uh, interesting to practice with, uh, you know, dribbling and you know, not being able to chew food properly and uh, looking a little, you know, sort of nightmare on Elm Street kind of thing. Not that bad, but... Um, anyhow, so the next day I was, I was uh, at some event and uh, it, was, it was about 24 hours later and it, it took about that length of time for me. To, I was sort of touching it. I know that if you, for those of you who've had it, it kind of feels really weird. It feels like rubber. Your skin goes really kind of numbish. And, and, I, and the thought came, oh, maybe I can love this too. Maybe I can love this too. Because you know, the first impulse was like, you know, fear and, and dislike and reaction and what's it going to be like? Am I always going to be dribbling? It doesn't really, you know. And to suddenly be able to turn to go, oh, yeah, this, this too. I, this, I can love this too. This numbness, this stiffness, this rubberiness, even if this is how it always is, I can love this too. That's the, the attitude of matter meeting our experience. I have a family of raccoons living underneath my bathtub right now. They've been sort of having a good time down there for about two months. And um, they're kind of noisy at night. <laughs> and it's a really good place to practice. You know, sometimes I'm like, mm, please be quiet. And other times it's like, oh, it's just a family wanting a nice, warm, little, cozy spot in my house. Okay. But also, you know, being practicing matter doesn't mean also being a doormat. And you know, so we, you know, we called the the animal catchers, and <laughs> and so far they failed to catch them. <laughs> we have very humane animal catchers, so they're doing their best not to harm the animals and all that. So they're practicing matter as they're trying to get up there and under the bathtub. So. Yeah, so if you think of, of metta as, a, as an inclining attitude practice, can you incline your mind and your heart towards a quality of warmth or openness or receptivity towards what's happening? No matter how difficult, how painful. So this is from Rumi. He says, if God said, Rumi, 
pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, then there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one act I would not bow to. Pay homage to everything that has helped you enter the divine. There would not be one experience of his life that he would not bow to, not one thought, not one feeling, not one action. So we have, we have this sort of a criteria of what's good, what's bad, what's good, what's helpful, what's not helpful. And so we set up this whole duality and rejection acceptance thing and we, we, we reject so much of ourselves and our experience, this can't possibly be you know, part of my retreat or part of my body or part of my heart or part of anything. And what, what happens? You know? We split, we cut off, we feel less whole. We feel not at home in ourselves. So the practice of metta, we start with ourselves, as we've been guiding here, because this is, traditionally we do the metta practice in whatever, the easiest way possible. And we also do it here because this is the seat from where our love springs from. But as many of you probably found out, wishing loving kindness for yourself is not so easy. How many people are not finding it so easy to wish loving-kindness for yourself unconditionally? Okay, yeah. The Buddha said, the whole world we travel with our thoughts and no one anywhere is more precious than our own dear selves. No one more worthy of our own loving-kindness. Oscar Wilde put it this way. He said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. This is from Arthur Miller, the playwright. He's talking about a dream. He said, The same dream returned each night until I dared not to go to sleep and grew quite ill. I dreamed I had a child, and even in the dream I saw it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again and clutched at my clothes, until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps then I could sleep. And I, be- and I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life into one's arms. So, and that's the journey of self-matter, is to, is to learn how to take ourselves into our arms, slowly, patiently, kindly. And then as the, as, as the practice grows, we then have more capacity to include others in that. If we, if, we, if we have all these places in ourselves that we don't like, that we cut off, that we reject, guess what happens when we meet somebody who has those same things? Right? We recoil, we react, we, we blame, we, we want to get away. Right? So it just limits the capacity. And when we limit our love, it's painful. To shut down the heart is painful. So, why don't we abound in this, this boundless quality of love that the Buddha talked about? Why don't we naturally just feel love for everybody here and ourselves and all of that? Why is it so hard to feel kindness to ourselves? Well, one thing I want to speak to, which I think is the, both the biggest obstacle to matter in our practice 
and also the metta practice is the greatest antidote to it, is the critic. The judging mind, the critic, the superego, the voice that's always telling you you're not enough, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not the right body type, your meditation practice is lousy, and your yoga practice sucks, and everything you do is never really quite up to scratch. Anybody recognize this voice? Yeah, it's pretty familiar. And it becomes, you know, if you stay in this practice long enough, it becomes a Buddhist critic, you know, a meditation critic, a yoga critic. You know, it just, it just morphs into whatever you get into and then decides it's, it has the, you know, voice of, you know, reasoning and objectivity to decide whether you're good enough. And it's really important to learn to recognize this, particularly in a practice, because just like doubt, it creates a lot of self-doubt and it undermines your practice. To notice, oh, thank you. Yes, my, that, my trikonasa really isn't up to shape. Oh, thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, your mindfulness is really slack today. Come on already. Thank you. That's very interesting. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, to, to mostly to, to recognize it, ignore it, dismiss it. Humor is really helpful. If we don't laugh, it just ain't funny, as Wavy Gravy says. You know, and, the, and the, the critic loves to slam the meta practice. Meta, shmeta, what's this? This isn't going to, you know, you, I know what you're really like. You're really a nasty, selfish person. You're not really going to love anybody. You know? So it undermines. So recognize it. Have a sense of humor with it. Tease it. Mostly ignore it. So this is a, I like to read this cartoon. It's a, Example of how a critic and our mind plays havoc with our well-being is called the checklist of feeling pathetic. The first caption says, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. I know none of you comparing yourself to anybody here, but just in case you do, examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Really, this is a popular meditation one. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Also a popular (laughs) retreat theme, especially family members. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. (laughs) And lastly, resign yourself from believing from now on this is how you will always feel. That's always a setup for happiness. So there's a lot more I could say about Meta. I've run out of time. Um, but like as I said at the beginning of uh, the beginning of this talk the point of this practice is to to live it to bring it into our lives into our relationship with ourselves our bodies our neighbors here as we go back home to see what gets in the way, to understand why our heart closes, to see if we can still be open with that, to be kind with that, to be forgiving. Forgiveness is a beautiful support for loving kindness, self-forgiveness, particularly forgiving ourselves all the ways that we may have uh, done things that we feel embarrassed about or remorse about. If we don't forgive ourselves, the heart just stays contracted. And we can practice, even here, we can practice stealth matter. 
So we can just do a very simple um, meta practice from one classification of the Buddha as a replacement practice. We replace a negative mind state with a wholesome mind state. So you could be, you know, standing in line and, you know, resenting all the people who are ahead of you in the line and you're just feeling more anger and resentment and then you, and then you call to mind a metaphrase, may you be happy, may we all get, may we all be well fed, may we all get to the meal on time and it suddenly transforms that mind state. And you can be walking around here and just as people you pass, the animals that you pass, the birds you hear, you can just wish them, may you be happy, may you be safe. People come in your mind, people often, you know, frequent visitors, enemies, just wish them well. Instead of, oh no, this shouldn't be happening, oh, may you be well, and then let them go. So we just start to radially have this sense of warmth. And so sometimes people often say this practice feels cool or isolating or removed. And metta can be like a lubricant. It can, it can sow the field with warmth and tenderness and connection without being intrusive in any way. Nobody has to know that you're this beaming light of loving kindness. And I'll close with this very simple story. Again, it's about a child. Somebody organized a competition to find the most caring child. Seems like an odd competition, but anyhow, it was, someone, it was a contest. And um, so the winner turned out to be a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there for quite a while. Later, when his mother asked him what he'd said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Oh, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. So that's simple. So let's sit together for a few moments. Just bring your attention to your heart. Sense the quality of presence and the quality of innate goodness or warmth that may be there for yourself or for each other. So we have about 30 minutes for walking practice and we'll come back for a sitting and